0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to um, the beginning of another uh, week. Hard to believe we are already into August. As I said the other from the other podcast, uh, where does the time go? But I think we all know by now that the older we get, the faster the time goes by. So, I'm glad to be on the air again with you all, like I always do and uh, we are discussing um, still once again signing their rights away the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution we're pretty much now into what I call the final four that is the final four states that we will be uh, discussing in uh, signing their rights away but there will be a surprise towards the very end a surprise that um most of us probably did not know but ought to be reminded about so usually when i think of the phrase the final four i think of the um, men's or women's ncaa basketball tournaments but we begin with um, the first of the final four states in signing their rights away with the upper south When I think of the South, I usually think of the Deep South, but to me, the Upper South would be comprised of states like Virginia and North Carolina, whereas the Lower South would be states like South Carolina and Georgia. Well, the state that we're going to be discussing in tonight's uh, podcast episode, I like to phrase as the following, the granddaddy of them all. Now, the only time I've ever really heard that phrase be said was when the Rose Bowl was played at the start, or gets played at the start of the um, of the new year for college football. Uh, Keith Jackson, that is the the late uh, great sports commentator Keith Jackson. He always referred to uh, the Rose Bowl as the granddaddy of them all. Well, does anybody want to take a shot? at what state we are going to be discussing tonight that, in my opinion, is referred to as the granddaddy of them all. Well, we've already talked about Massachusetts. We've already talked about Pennsylvania. We've already talked about New York. The reason why I'm mentioning some of those uh, states, like, for example, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, they are large states. You know, Massachusetts may not be the same size as Virginia is in today's time, but let's keep in mind, Massachusetts had control of another um, state that was not already a state and wouldn't become one until 1820. Remember, folks, part of Massachusetts, well, the state that was considered part of Massachusetts was Maine. So let's keep in mind that at one time, Massachusetts was much larger than it is today, in large part because because Massachusetts owned all of what we now know as Maine. The state that, um, in my opinion, is the granddaddy of them all in terms of its size, even for 1787 standards, was none other than Virginia, where I hail from. We have to remember in 1787 that um, Virginia's territory goes all the way to present-day Ohio, what we now know West Virginia. Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, maybe as far west as Wisconsin, and perhaps uh, as far uh, west as Kentucky. So Virginia, even in the post-Revolutionary War era, folks, it's still the largest state. So I've already answered part of the uh, bonus question for you all. Which of the 13 states was the largest, being Virginia? But I didn't answer, but I didn't explain this part, being the second part. Did Virginia send more delegates to Philadelphia versus Maryland and Delaware's five? How many delegates do you think Virginia sent if, in fact, Virginia sent more than Maryland and Delaware, given that those two states sent five per each end? Did Virginia send eight like Pennsylvania did? Or did Virginia send between six and seven? Or did Virginia send 10? The answer is seven, second highest to Pennsylvania's eight delegates. Well, let me ask you this. Um, Was the future father of our country present at the Constitutional Convention? Who was that, folks? Was that George Washington or John Hancock? The answer is George Washington. And here's a good true, true and false question for you all. Was George Washington elected president on the Constitutional Convention's first day? Do I hear a lot of trues? And do I, or do I hear more falses than trues? The answer is true. George Washington was elected president on the Constitutional Convention's first day. And it is fair to say that his presence left many in a state of amazement. For one, the man is about six feet four inches tall, folks. Very few men of his time got even as close as six feet tall. And the only reason I know this, for one example, is that when the first... um, Group of men came to what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia, back in 1607. The average height uh, for an English man at the time was just over five feet, but we're looking probably, we're not looking anywhere close to six feet, but probably about five eight at best in terms of uh, tall, in terms of the what you call the tallest uh, height of the time. But very few men exceeded a height of six feet and over. The only other man that I know of uh, in terms of a prominent Virginian of this time who was over six feet tall was Thomas Jefferson at 6'2". But yes, I think it's fair to say that, you know, one factor being Washington's height would have left many in, um, in a state of amazement, but it's not so much his height. How about the fact that many delegates had never seen Washington either in person, or if they had, they usually had seen him from a distance but very few of those delegates had ever seen him up close. So, to see this man, who was the commander of the Continental Army up close in person, that is quite a sight to behold, one that many probably never forgot. Well, here's a little bonus question for you all involving George Washington. Uh, What type of government did Washington himself advocate? Did he advocate a government that was strong or weak? If there are people out there who think he advocated a weak government, then something's not right. The only reason I say that is because Washington himself had fought a long, hard seven years' war to keep kings out of the country, but not just so much to keep tyrants out of the country, but in the aftermath of rebellions, most notably like the infamous uh, Shays' Rebellion that occurred in Massachusetts, and other rebellions that were taking place in New Hampshire. For example, Washington knew that if these rebellions continued, then how could government itself even function? So, it's fair to say that Washington advocated advocated a strong centralized government that had broad powers. And of course, when I think of broad powers, how about the power to tax, the power to regulate commerce, the power to uh, maintain an army and a navy, uh, the power to, um, you know, think about broad powers that um, that are essential, and not only, say, in a time of war, but in a time of peace as well. And would it be fair to say that George Washington also had the unique honor of being the first to sign the United States Constitution? Yes. He was the first to sign the Constitution, and his signature was the largest, kind of like how John Hancock's signature on the Declaration of Independence was the largest, because John Hancock was really the accidental president of the Continental Congress, of the Second Continental Congress that went about officially declaring separation from England. Does anybody want to know who was president of the um, Continental Congress before John Hancock became president? How about Peyton Randolph of Virginia? Peyton Randolph sadly died, and because he died, that's how uh, John Hancock became um, the um, newly elected president. So, had Peyton Randolph not died, uh, Peyton Randolph's signature would have been the largest. So, um, given that I mentioned earlier that there were seven um, delegates that were sent uh, to Philadelphia from Virginia, it would take—I know—it would take a couple of nights just to get, just to talk about all seven men. But um, we're going to talk about two in particular. Yes, George Washington was important, but I really believe that these other two men deserve um, a great amount of uh, recognition. Our first delegate will be uh, none other than uh, Mr. John Blair. I'm sure most of y'all have never heard of uh, John Blair before, but that's okay. You know, usually when we think of Constitution signers, we think of Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, James Madison. We think also think of um, other men, um, like B- and Benjamin Franklin, uh, for example. If I could, you know, and Roger Sherman of uh, Connecticut. Usually, those are the five that would come to many people's minds. But uh, John Blair, I could tell you this much: is a man of uh, of a uh, noteworthy prominence whose um, who has a unique story to tell. Well, for starters, we know that he was born on April the 17th, 1732, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And yes, good old Williamsburg, Virginia, not far from where I live. One of my wife's one of my wife and I's uh, favorite places to visit in Virginia, one of many, I should say. But no matter how many times we go to Colonial Williamsburg, we're always learning something new all the time. And that that, to me, folks, is what makes history all the more uh, worthwhile learning. But uh, yes, John Blair was born April 17th, 1732. He was born two months after George Washington. Uh, So those two men have something in common right there, being Virginians and both being born in the year 1732. Williamsburg was just, um, had just turned 30 years, or just over 30 years of uh, being the state's uh, capital. Of course, it would still remain uh, Virginia's capital um, for, another, for close to another 50 years. And as a matter of fact, I should point out that the uh, capital uh, relocated to Williamsburg in 1699 uh, from Jamestown. And uh, it remained the uh, capital of Virginia up until 1780, just before the American Revolutionary War ended. And yes, John Blair hailed from a family whom was wealthy and well connected. I'd like to talk a little uh, about a little bit about uh, Blair's uh family to help give you all a better understanding of just how um of just how important um the Blair's were in Williamsburg. Of course, when I think of prominent Virginians, I'm always thinking of the Birds, the uh, Randolphs, the Custises, the Lees, and the Carters. But we must not forget about the Blairs. John's father was John Blair Sr., whom was both a prominent merchant and a politician. As a politician, John Sr. served in Virginia's House of Burgesses, which is like the equivalent of the modern-day House of Delegates or Congress's uh, U.S. House of Representatives. John Sr. represented Jamestown and Williamsburg. His political service also included serving as a four-time governor of Virginia. John Sr. was the nephew to James Blair. Why is James Blair, folks, so important? Well, James Blair was a clergyman who served on behalf of the Church of England, AKA the Anglican Church. However, James Blair became one of the founders to the second oldest collegiate institution in the United States, the first being Harvard, which was founded in 1636. How about uh, James Blair being the founder of William of the College of William and Mary, where he served as the school's first president from 1693 to 1743. In that same year, he passed away, but he, um, James Blair lived to be about 87 years old, which <laughs> back in that day and time, was very unheard of, and how ironic the year that he passed away in 1743. Another uh, one of our prominent forefathers was born that same year as well, being none other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson. I have a good uh, friend of mine uh, whose uh, parents... um, attended a high school, Williamsburg. Uh, It got renamed some years back uh, Lafayette High School, but there was a high school in Williamsburg called James Blair High School. So that's how I first learned about James Blair, was through uh, the school that my friend's uh, parents attended high school-wise. But James Blair, believe it or not, folks, is buried in uh, historic Jamestown at the Jamestown uh, Fort Settlement along with some other noteworthy Virginians. But anyways, back to uh, discussing John Blair, Jr. Well, let me ask you this. Did uh, John Blair, Jr. attend the College of William and Mary? Yes, he did. He graduated there in 1754. But after he graduated there that year in 1754, where did John Blair, Jr. proceed next with his life? Well, a year later, in 1755, he departed for London, England, where he studied law at Middle Temple, or what we call the um, the Court of Inns. You know, how ironic that another uh, forefather of ours who's been largely forgotten, and he was mentioned when I discussed about Delaware, how about Mr. John Dickinson? So, look at it this way, folks. John Blair and John Dickinson are both attending... Um, middle temple and studying law small world to say the least well besides serving as a lawyer john blair jr served in the house of burgesses just like his father did john jr was there from 1766 to 1770 some interesting times to say the least along with serving as a clerk to the royal governor's council you know, whenever I think of two houses of, uh, of legislative body, I always think of the House and the Senate. But we have to keep in mind in colonial times, and this probably would have been the case in other colonies, but I know most notably in Virginia, there was no such thing as a Senate. So whom did the governor turn to for uh, support? Did he turn to the House of Burgesses? Well, he could have sought their advice, but he had his own unique body how about what was called the council of state which was usually comprised of about 8 or 10 members whom would whom were pretty much like a cabinet to the governor but the council of state was the one that w- was the body that advised the governor on all critical affairs going on um in virginia and even outside of virginia because remember folks virginia being the largest of the 13 states you never know uh, when Virginia could have faced a crisis along its state boundary lines, and even in crises well west of the fall line, that fall line usually being around Charlottesville, or, or rather Richmond, rather, where the fall line separating um, the mountains from uh, the non-mountainous regions. So, John Blair served as a clerk to the Royal Governor's Council, being the upper house of the Virginia colonial legislature from 1770 to 1775. Now, you know, the period in the post-French and Indian War era, as I've said many of times before, it's a very tense period of time. You've got many people who are all of a sudden against Britain in large part because Britain is taxing us without our consent, and it has led to a lot of um, uproar, anger, opposition, of course, most notably in Massachusetts. But even in Virginia, there is a lot of discontent. Most notably, um, when I think of discontent, I think of men like Patrick Henry, even George Wythe himself, uh, who is a prominent um, member of the Williamsburg community uh, on the in the House of Burgesses would go on to become a judge and mentor future um, lawyers like Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, John Marshall to Henry Clay. But we have to remember there are a fair share of Virginians whom are whom are um, very discontent with what Parliament is doing. But where does John Blair himself stand at first when uh, debating revolutionary agenda matters? Is he on the side of the Patriots, or is he somewhere in the middle? Believe it or not, at early on, folks, John Blair falls under the moderate wing. So, in other words, he's not on the extreme right in terms of um, advocating complete order or complete um, allegiance to the Crown, but he's not on the extreme left that is, supporting violence, uh, supporting um, unruly activities, that is, speaking out left and right in opposition of the Stamp Act or the Townshend duties. But John Blair is really in the middle. He's hoping that there will be some kind of resolution that will help make amends between the colonies and England. So in other words... He opposes Patrick Henry's resolutions that were in opposition to, the, to Parliament's 1765 Stamp Act. Well, do you think it's possible that John Blair's mind could have changed at some point? Yes. What happened in 1769 that caused John Blair to change his outlook towards Britain and Parliament. Okay, 1769, uh, four years earlier, Parliament had passed the Stamp Act. And then a year after, in March 1766, uh, Parliament repealed the Stamp Act. A year later, 1767, we have those Townshend duties that place taxes on lead, paper, paint, glass, and tea. So it's really another... um, it's really another jab at the colonists, but what happens in 1769 in Virginia that changes everything for John Blair? Lord Botetourt, Virginia's royal governor, goes about dissolving the House of Burgesses in response to Burgess members voicing opposition towards Parliament's unfair, improper practices. In other words, Burgesses, left and right, had spoken out against the abuses that Parliament had engaged in. And by doing so, they felt that Parliament had deprived their subjects of the right to voice their opposition in a peaceful manner. After all, the Burgesses now are beginning to realize that, hey, no one is speaking on their behalf 3,000 miles away to say, hey, my constituents 3,000 miles on the opposite side of town, on the opposite side of the ocean, either support this legislation or are totally against it. So, for John Blair, this really is a, not only a violation of freedom of speech, but it's a violation of um it's a violation of of what we would call appropriate or direct consent. Now John Blair realizes that there was never any consent to be given. So the Burgesses met at what's called, folks, the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg. And I've been in there plenty of times, but it's a great place to visit. And the Raleigh Tavern is important because this is where um, the House of Burgesses, they met secretly... And they all agreed to sign non-importation agreements, meaning that all British goods coming into America would be boycotted, a.k.a. not bought. These uh, goods would be left on the ships to rot. And for a period of time, I should point out that John Blair Jr.'s father, John Blair Sr., actually owned the Raleigh Tavern. So can you all understand why the Blairs, even though they may not have had the same, they may not have been in the same boat, perhaps as the Byrds or the Randolphs, or the uh, Custises or the Carters, but the bird, but the uh, Blairs folks, they do have prominence in Williamsburg, and it should never go unnoticed. After war had initially broken out with England, where did Blair lend himself? He served on the Virginia Privy Council, which was an advisory group to uh, Governor Patrick Henry. And why is Patrick Henry unique here, folks? Because he is the first non-royal governor in Virginia. And our last royal governor, being Lord Dunmore, a.k.a. John Murray, was uh, he had uh, dissolved the House of Burgesses, and once again, our Burgesses met at the Raleigh Tavern to discuss the future for Virginia. So, Patrick Henry, folks, is Virginia's first non-royal governor. John Blair also serves on Virginia's general court, where he eventually rose to the position of chief justice. And how ironic that John Blair Jr. served on the Virginia High Court of Chancery, where he served alongside Declaration of Independence signer Mr. George Wythe. Okay, here's a question you all are eager to um, find the answers to. You know, I said earlier Virginia sent seven delegates to Philadelphia. Did all seven men sign? Well, we obviously know George Washington signed. That's a given, given that he was the president. But did the others sign? Well, I'm going to tell you this right now. Only three out of seven signed. Other than George Washington, John Blair and James Madison were the other two men, meaning that three men from Virginia signed. What happened with the other four men? Well, two delegates refused to sign the document as there were no Bill of Rights included. One delegate being George Wythe, he left in August to return home to his wife, Elizabeth Taliaferro, whom was um, rather ill. And sadly, she died a month later. George With was uh, never, it took him a long time to get over the, the loss of his wife. He and his uh, wife had been married for a little over 30 years, but she um, was someone that he looked up to with the utmost uh, reverence and respect. And then another delegate dropped out due to a lack of interest. You know, that really is not, that's not good at all to send someone to Philadelphia as a delegate only to drop out because they were no longer interested. So that leads me to another quick question for you all. Did someone else who could have been a delegate get snubbed from Virginia? Yes. Would you all like to know who that man was that got snubbed? How about James Monroe? James Monroe, um, in my opinion, should have been this other delegate that went along but he got snubbed by Governor Edmund Randolph, who was a delegate to the uh, Constitutional Convention. Apparently, Edmund Randolph and James Monroe had some differences that obviously were not worked out, and Edmund Randolph did not appreciate James Monroe for who he was and what he had accomplished before and leading up to um, the late 1780s. James Monroe never forgave him. Can you blame the guy? No. But it is fair to say that James Monroe would go on to have an illustrious uh, public service career that would, that, would become, that would lead to his becoming one day President of the United States. Did Edmund Randolph become President of the United States, folks? No. Maybe it's fair to say James Monroe could have had the last laugh when it was all said and done with. But come 1789, what all would be in store for John Blair? Well... You know, 1789 is a very important year. You know, George Washington becomes president at the end of uh, April of that year. But on September 24th, 1789, President George Washington nominated John Blair Jr. to the United States Supreme Court. And two days later, on the 26th, his nomination got confirmed. Gosh, you know, in this day and age, when a president... Um, nominates uh, someone to the uh, High Court of, our, of the United States, being the U.S. Supreme Court, the debate process takes a lot longer, and then you've got people who um, speak on behalf of advocating for why Justice Jones or Justice Smith, for example, should be uh, appointed to the High Court, and then you have people who speak out in opposition. You didn't have all that in 1789. And maybe, on one hand, that was a good thing. After all, (laughs) the Senate uh, confirmed his uh, nomination two days later after George Washington um, did the initial nomination request. So I guess it's fair to say even back then we didn't have to worry about interest groups like we do today and other um, matters that can sadly be taken out of proportion. John Blair did serve on the uh, high court of the United States being the U.S. Supreme Court until 1796. In other words, he stepped down one year after George Washington's presidency came to an end. He stepped down for medical reasons, he, and he uh, died on August the 31st, 1800, at age 68. Well, it is fair to say that John Blair did get to live, got to live to see our nation's first two presidents. Um, ascend to the high office, and it's, it's also fair to say that um, John Blair did get to live to see uh, two capitals, New York and Philadelphia, and he was alive t- to know that um, it, he was alive rather in knowing that the capital would be relocated one day, but he never got to see that final uh, piece of uh, transformation take place, or transfer, rather. But he died at the age of 68, and he is buried at Bruton Parish Episcopal Church Cemetery in Williamsburg. And uh, that is uh, also uh, worth uh, seeing. Um, it hasn't been open to the public since the pandemic, but um, but if you visit the uh, the gravestones of, of uh, prominent Virginians, uh, you will definitely get an appreciation. After all, when you think of Bruton Parish Episcopal Church, just remember that that's where the Church of England, a.k.a. the... Anglican Church once stood, and it was Virginia's premier church up until um, the late 1770s. It was about 1778 when, um, when the Anglican Church finally uh, gave way and taxes were no longer required to uh, support the church. Moving on to our second delegate, uh, James Madison. And what do we know about James Madison, folks? He was the father of the Constitution. That is his um, official nick, one of his nicknames or titles. Another title he often gets um, associated with is the father of the Bill of Rights, or the founder of the Bill of Rights. Is James Madison um, older or younger than Thomas Jefferson? He's younger than Thomas Jefferson. As a matter of fact, Madison is eight years younger than Mr. Jefferson. He was born on March 16, 1751, in Port Conway, Virginia, which is located uh, along Virginia's northern neck. It's really now a uh, what we would call a wide spot in the road. But then again, uh, the northern neck is still a very nice place to visit, but at one time that was where... Um, A lot of the well-to-do people in Virginia's uh, high society were living in the early days of our, not only of our republic's existence, but before uh, we even declared war on England. George Washington was born in the Northern Neck, so was James Monroe. As a matter of fact, James Madison is seven years older than James Monroe. Madison was born into a wealthy family where he was the oldest of 12 children. Never a dull moment, probably, in that home. Uh, Given the family status in Virginia society, did James Madison attend college? And if so, was it in Virginia or out of state? Well, let's keep in mind, folks, there's only one college in Virginia. As a matter of fact, it's the only college in the South being uh, William and Mary. So, could James Monroe have gone to William and Mary? Sure. But he chose differently. There's nothing wrong with that. He went out of state and attended college north of Virginia in New Jersey. How about the College of New Jersey or what would later become Princeton University? Why do you think James Madison could have went north instead of staying put in Virginia by attending William & Mary? Well, one thing I have learned, and I've known this for some time, is that um, whereas the College of William & Mary was aligned strictly with the Church of England, so in other words, you attend the College of William and Mary, your allegiance better be to the Church of England. If it's not, uh, there will be all kinds of issues, and people's eyebrows will be raising at you, uh, people will raise their eyebrows at you left and right. But uh, by attending uh, the College of New Jersey, that was an institution which welcomed religious diversity, okay? You could have been a member of the Church of England and still going to the College of New Jersey. But if you are Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Quaker, Unitarian, you are welcomed at the College of New Jersey. And so Madison um, got a very good education there. He met a lot of um, unique men whom would um, play a role in shaping our nation's um, republic. He stayed an extra year there by studying theology. At one time, James Madison thought he might have become a minister. He studied under John Witherspoon, whom not only taught theology, but was also the College of New Jersey's president. And something you all should keep in mind is that John Witherspoon would go on to become the only clergyman whom signed the Declaration of Independence. Although religion wasn't for Madison, or or rather I should say uh, the study of um, becoming a, a theologian or a minister wasn't for him, his thirst for knowledge led him to develop a great passion for political theory, along with studying about governments past and present. In other words, governments that failed, governments that succeeded and were still intact, that's the kind of history that Madison himself became all the more passionate about. Perhaps it'll come useful down the road, especially not only when we're declaring our separation from England, but come time to reform America to where a new governing document will need to take place of what was already in existence before that was, that was um, a failed um, governing system. Well, given that James Madison suffered from chronic bouts of illnesses, which kept him from active duty throughout the Revolutionary War, how would he go about lending his voice in other ways? Well, for starters, uh, in 1775, he joined Orange County's Committee of Safety, and come 1776, he attended the Virginia Convention, which saw him help write Virginia's first state Constitution you know James Madison's only twenty five years old folks in seventeen seventy six and yet he as and yet he has attended the Virginia convention that that allowed him to help uh, play a part in writing Virginia's first state constitution. What does that tell you about Madison? He's got knowledge and hindsight on an array of subjects that while yes many others whom are older than him would have But the fact that a 25-year-old fella knows a great deal about the existence of republics, past and present, and whether or not they survived or not because of what their constitutions allowed for, it tells you something right there that Madison is the go-to guy on how to go about implementing governments, so that government for the people and by the people, is not just a short-term concept, it is a long-term concept that will be essential not only in the present state, in the present day, but for the future. And, you know, just like John Blair Jr., you know, he served on privy uh, on a privy council for uh, Governor Patrick Henry, James Madison also had the luxury of serving on an advisory committee to Governors Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson succeeded Patrick Henry. You know, it's interesting, those two men, Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson, yes, very smart men, but yet had very, very um, opposite um, political ideologies and thinkings, I should say. And the only reason I know that is because when... uh, My wife and I are in Colonial Williamsburg, and whenever we hear young Thomas Jefferson speak, he always likes to mention about Patrick Henry, and usually he'll give a response by saying, well, if you want to talk to Mr. Henry, you can do so, but be prepared for four- and five-hour speeches. I'll be more than happy to debate him, but it will take an eternity. In other words, no matter how long we're debating, we may never get to answer everyone's questions, within a short period of time. That's how big those two men's differences were. From 1780 to 1783, James Madison is doing what, folks? Is he still in Virginia, or is he serving in Congress? He is serving in Congress, but it's not the Congress that we know of in today's times. He's serving in Congress under the Articles of Confederation, where he does a lot of good things. For one, he develops a friendship with Alexander Hamilton to discovering the inefficiencies under the existing government. So here we go again, folks. James Madison is already starting to see inefficiencies, or deficiencies rather, because he knows that, okay, if we do defeat the mightiest empire in the world, is this government that we're operating under still going to be valid and effective? In other words, will this government that we know of still be of good use five years from now? And if it's not, how do we replace it before we um, face a crisis that may not result in um, yielding um, a positive result that would actually, um, how would I say it, a positive result that would uh, get the country on the right track? So, Madison is already predicting the future. That's the best way to sum it up in a nutshell. Now, before enough men could be mustered for a quorum, that is, when I say quorum, folks, how about um, enough people present to conduct official business or a meeting. But before enough men could be mustered for official business on May 25th, 1787. Why is that date important, folks? Because that was the first initial date or the first official meeting date for men to assemble, to come together, to talk about the future, and shaping a new government. What had James Madison already gotten started on? And here again, folks, he's one step ahead. That's what makes James Madison unique, folks. I mean, I know a lot of our other forefathers found ways to be one step ahead of things, but from what I've read on Madison... He was one of those fellows who really knew how to be on the ball and he knew how to um, get things going. He might as well have been his own, what you say, like, you know, like his own offensive coordinator or a special teams coordinator type person. He knew how to get the ball rolling when others weren't ready to do it on their terms. But what had he already gotten started on? how about creating the virginia plan which called for in his eyes the virginia plan would call for a new national constitution it would call for it would call on having multiple branches of government and it would also require having more than uh one legislative body you know in virginia we really only had even though we may have had what was called the council of state which was linked to the governor being the upper body For many of years in Virginia leading up to um, separation from England, it was, in my opinion, it was always the House of Burgesses. But is it fair to say that perhaps James Madison is advocating for a bicameral legislature that we know of now as like the the House and the Senate and multiple branches of government that we know of today as the um, legislative, executive, and judicial branches? Absolutely. Madison firmly believed that the national government had the right to tax people directly and that representation was to be equal to population per state. And the national government could have the power to veto state legislation. And as for a chief executive, a.k.a. president, he believed that the president should have powers, but that the president should not have the same kind of powers as a legislative body. Okay, the, legislate, the legislative body or the legislature is the one that enacts laws. The president has the power to sign or veto uh, bills that come before him. You know, Congress has the power to declare war. The president of the United States does not have that authority. The president... Um, of course, this was not in existence in 1789, but, but close to 50 years ago, Congress enacted what was called the War Powers Resolution back in the early 70s, which required the President to consult with Congress 48 hours ahead of time before issuing a, um, either a declaration or issuing any kind of um, decree for why uh, the United States would need to go to war with another uh, nation. So think about this, folks. Madison knows that in order for a government to succeed, there has to be um, separation of powers, but there also has to be um, proper channels of communication amongst um, different bodies of government. One branch, on the other hand, might be a little bit more independent than the other, and usually when I think of that, I think of the judiciary branch, but there still has to be uh, communication amongst the branches themselves. What plan, you know, Madison was talking, we had mentioned earlier that Madison was um, wanting to create what we call the Virginia plan. So did Madison's Virginia plan prevail? I mean, the other plan that was out there was the New Jersey plan, which uh, pretty much said that, hey, each state, regardless of its size, gets one vote. Well, the Virginia plan ends up prevailing in large part because of Roger Sherman's great compromise. Roger Sherman from Connecticut. That plan allowed for each state to have two senators, regardless of size and representation in the House, based on population. Hey, when you can compromise, a lot of good things can happen. And actually, and that's what we have um, seen so far. I think our politicians in today's time need to work on more of that. But of course, with uh, the transportation uh, infrastructure plan that I've been following um, from time to time lately, there seems to be a lot of compromises there. So they are finally going in the right direction. After uh, returning to Virginia from Philadelphia, would Madison and other pro-Constitution advocates face uphill battles at the Virginia State Convention? Well, folks, you know, Virginia is the largest of the 13 states. That's why I said early on that Virginia is often referred to as the granddaddy of them all. She has a lot to gain and yet a lot to lose. And even before separation from England ever took place, if any other state wanted to declare its separation from England, they would have had to have done something that was mandatory. They would have needed to um, get Virginia's opinion on it. How so? Well, I said it earlier. Virginia being the largest state, she has the most to gain and yet the most to lose. So if you don't consult with the largest of the states being Virginia, you're going to be out in left field on your own, probably um, fending for yourself. But yes, James Madison and other uh, pro-Constitution advocates like um, John Blair Jr. and George Washington, they dealt with their fair share of opponents like George Mason Edmund Randolph to Richard Henry Lee. And I was surprised about Richard Henry Lee because he was so vital with behind the Declaration of Independence. But hey, you know, people's minds sometimes change over things when it's least expected, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's always not for the better. But there were a handful of prominent Virginians whom were not uh, real thrilled about the Constitution. They liked, actually i take it back, many of them actually liked what the document itself offered, but it lacked one thing, a Bill of Rights. You know, it would have been great, perhaps on one hand, for the Constitution to have incorporated a Bill of Rights right away, but here's the problem, folks. Delegates are in Philadelphia from late May to the middle of September of 1787. If they stayed another three to five months just to debate on what would constitute a Bill of Rights package, who's to say that maybe the Constitution itself might never have gotten ratified by all the states? So, in other words, it's like saying, okay, let's start out with this, but when we convene again next time, once our new government gets established, how about we talk about the Bill of Rights? So, in other words, <laughs> we should keep in mind that not, not, not everyone could have everything they wanted right away. Some people, people in general, from Philadelphia, the delegates walked away with something. Everybody did. Not everyone could come away with all the, with all the, um, the answers. So, yes, uh, men like George Mason, uh, Edmund Randolph, those two men chose not to sign because there was no Bill of Rights. Well, as for uh, Patrick Henry, He didn't go to Philadelphia, but he opposed the Constitution because he just thought it was too extreme. He thought it was a document that simply would alter people's lives for all the wrong directions. So Patrick Henry, (laughs) I would think of him now in today's time as like a libertarian. In other words, government don't tell me to do X, Y and Z government. get off my backs, get off my back government. You're infringing upon my rights in, in X, Y and Z um, categories. Patrick Henry, in other words, would have preferred to have lived under that failed form of government, aka the Articles of Confederation, that would have allowed the states to reign supreme over the federal government. And the scary part is, folks, there were people out there who would have preferred living under the Articles of Confederation. I wouldn't have. I would have preferred living under the Constitution, and I still prefer living under it, knowing that it's not so much that has been around for 233 some, some odd years, but the fact that it's proven to have been one of the most successful uh, governing documents in the world. And yet, here we are younger than England and France and Spain, but yet we have the oldest uh, oldest constitution that's still in existence to this day. That says a lot right there. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, closed doors, James Madison would go about teaming up with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay in writing the Federalist Papers. I mentioned about the Federalist Papers when discussing Alexander Hamilton from a few podcasts back. The Federalist Papers were a series of essays published not only in New York's, not only in newspapers from New York, but elsewhere, explaining why the newly created Constitution was far better versus the Articles of Confederation. They were they were um, 85 essays. Uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote about. I want to say Hamilton wrote about 51 of them, Madison wrote 29, and uh, Jay himself only wrote five, but each man had a specialty area that they focused on in writing these essays, and they were um, essential because without them, I don't believe that uh, Virginia and New York would have gotten over the hump in in regards to uh, ratifying the actual Constitution itself. Like New York, uh, Virginia did approve the uh, Constitution, uh, but they were by um, thin razor margin votes. Given that New Hampshire ratified the US Constitution on June 21st of 1788, making it the ninth state to do so, which made the Constitution um, uh, a legal binding document, that is a, a document that could actually go into play, What did Virginia have the honor of doing four days later on June 25th? Well, Virginia became the 10th state to ratify the U.S. Constitution by a thin razor margin vote of 89 to 79. And then a month later, being in July of 1788, New York became the 11th state, as I mentioned when discussing about New York. So we really have James Madison to thank for going above and beyond. And yes, George Washington and... um, John Blair did their part, too. James Monroe, who was snubbed by Edmund, Governor Edmund Randolph, was at the Constitutional Convention and, led, and lent his hand in supporting the document. So did a uh, future United States Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Marshall. He was also in attendance as well. So there were many uh, Virginians in attendance at this convention who were rising in the ranks to have stellar careers, in uh, public's, in national public service. On June 28, 1836, James Madison died at his estate Montpelier. I used to always call it Montpelier, but uh, my mom said not long ago that it was pronounced as Montpelier in Orange County. And I've been there before, and it's a very nice estate. And I will tell you all this, um, when Madison died, uh, he died Yes, on June 28, 1836, after his death, his wife Dolly moved uh, back up north into what we now know as Northern Virginia and DC, where she lived out the remainder the remaining years of her life. The DuPont family uh, were the ones that uh, lived at James Madison's estate up until the early 1980s. Does DuPont Chemical ring a bell? You know, when I think of DuPont Chemical, I think of uh, the the grand estates in uh, Wilmington and Dover, Delaware, that the DuPont families um, lived in for a number of years. But, hey, the DuPonts also owned, uh, at one time, uh, lived in James Madison's estate, Montpellier, up until the early 1980s. And James Madison, folks, he may not have been the oldest of the signers, William Samuel Johnson of Connecticut had that unique honor um by living to the age of 92 when he died in 1819 but James Madison was the last signer of the US Constitution to die and he lived to be eight lived to be um 85 years old he died 10 years after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had done so on July the 4th of 1826 he outlived James Monroe by five years. Monroe died on July 4th of 1831. James Madison may not have been as tall as, as uh, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, but he was a giant for his time in shaping our government. As one person said uh, from an article I, read some year, I had read some years back, to understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into being. Without James Madison and his tireless works and studying about past republics and why past republics failed and why republics existed and the knowledge he brought to the Constitutional Convention, if it weren't for him, who knows if our Constitution really could have become a hallmark piece of um, governance or a hallmark piece of how government should um, be... um, established, not just for one branch, but for all three of our branches. So we do have Mr. Madison to thank for all of that. Well, that wraps up uh, this episode, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And thank you again, as always, my fellow 101 Podcast listeners, for being so supportive. Without you all, uh, I'm not sure how I could have uh, succeeded, knowing that I've gotten just over 9,200 plays. But as I've said before, and I'll say it again, I'm not in it for the income, I'm in it for the outcome. So continue to spread the word to those who want to listen. Continue to spread the word in, to others that history is vital, history is important, and while, yes, it may not always be pretty, it's still important to learn about the history itself so that we may not make those same mistakes again. But don't get deterred by anything negative in the news. Don't get deterred by anything that would keep you from not wanting to learn more about history but the bottom line is is that these stories have to be told i am more than happy to tell you what i know i may not always have all the answers but i will always do everything i can to give you all a better um perception of what i know and how it can be um and how it can be uh used in other settings when you go about visiting places of historic significance Thank you again as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Take care and stay safe.